Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Tyler, I'm, I'm David. Tyler here. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> did that throw you? Uh, <laughs> it reminded me of, of all things... One of our favorite movies, which is The Lift. Nah, I knew that was coming, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, a, uh, it's a Dutch horror movie, is that I right? Dutch, I don't remember. Um, and Somebody main... sent us a copy on VHS, which I cannot watch because I don't have that anymore. But Yeah, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but, uh, yeah, the main character's name is Adelar, and throughout the movie, he... Whenever he answers the phone, he says, Adelar. Yeah. And uh, my friend, you remember our, our friend Keith? Keith, yeah. Um when we lived in Keith and I lived in the dorms in Springfield, Missouri at the, what was then called Southwest Missouri state university, not just uh, Missouri state. Right. Yeah. Well, um, isn't there I, there, I think there's another one. I think there's like another MSU. Oh, Mississippi uh, state. No, I mean, there's another Missouri. I don't know. I might be wrong though. I don't know if that's like what, which one is Mizzou? Is well, that's that the university, university of Missouri, of Missouri Columbia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think we're good then. Yeah. Um, so anyway, when my phone would ring in the dorm and Keith would do the same thing, I would answer Adelar just hoping that it was Keith so I could make him laugh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a lot of the time. <laughs> I kind of had a, you know, I knew when Keith was going to be calling me. Anyway, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen Keith. Yeah. He's out here now, right? He was 10 years ago, last yeah. time I saw him. Yeah. You grow apart, you know? You get I, old. I get it, you know? Right? Feuds. <laughs> I know how it works. You just get old, you yeah. know? Hey, I know. There's a lot more white in my beard than, than there used to be. Uh, I still got you beat yeah, on that that's front. True. Um, okay, so uh, let's just get started because we got it. Despite it only being a week, I've had most of the past week off, and so I've there, therefore been watching a ton of movies, not even all of which I'm going to talk about here today because some of the rewatches that I don't have anything new to say about really. Right. Um, I'm but, going to uh, include my rewatches so it doesn't seem quite so paltry compared to what you've been watching. <laughs> yeah, I've been watching a ton of movies, so uh, I'm going to get started. I'm going to start things off with, I think, my only rewatch that I do want to talk about, which is I rewatched Sean Baker's Tangerine. Okay. Which is something I've been meaning to rewatch since seeing The Florida Project. And also because there's, you know, we talked about it with Alonso a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it comes up with Die Hard or Eyes Wide Shut every year. You know, like, what is a Christmas movie? And my, Although it shouldn't come up with Die Hard anymore. Uh, well, I mean, my, my thing is, um, I tend to have a very, I guess, uh, uh, liberal, not politically liberal, but just a liberal mm-hmm. definition of what consider, consists, what makes a Christmas movie. Sure. Because to me, a movie doesn't take place on Christmas or around Christmas by accident. Right. You know, someone said it there for a reason. So to me, if a movie takes place around Christmas, it's 90% of the way to being a Christmas movie just because some clearly the, the filmmaker or the screenwriter yeah. wanted to say something about that. And so Tangerine is a movie that takes place entirely on Christmas Eve. I forget. Did you ever get around to seeing it? I haven't seen Tangerine, nor have I seen Florida Project. Like, and I've heard wonderful things about both. Yeah, the Sean both Baker guy. Yeah. Well, Tangerine's on Netflix. You can watch it whenever you want. That's true. Um, that's what I did. Um, I not don't, to plug I don't, Netflix, but I don't go to Netflix that often. Oh, honestly. really? Uh, I, I know I need to. I do. But here's the thing. Okay. I find it overwhelming. Here's what I hate about Netflix. Okay. I hate the interface on Roku. Oh, okay. Because I feel like they're very much, and you, you know what? I'm repeating myself a little bit because back when you took your, uh, Asian vacation, yeah. Scott and I, Scott and Scott and I, and I talked about this a little bit, but the idea of 
uh, a thing like Netflix, Netflix, which is in, uh, you know a streaming service and an OTT in industry terms. Oh, okay. Um, uh, is that it's supposed to be a pull media as opposed to a push media. Okay. The idea being a push media is something like the you know broadcast or cable TV or the radio. Mm-hmm. You turn it on. And what's available is what's on right then. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes. So it's being pushed at you. Got it. Whereas the pull media is more like, you know, anything from Spotify to these OTTs to whatever, you know, where you're logging on and saying what they want. Yes, yes. To me, Netflix is supposed to be a pull media and it technically is. But the way their interface works, they're clearly pushing whatever like five, four or five newest things they have. And it drives me crazy in two ways. One. The and I'm not sure if this is true on other uh, things besides Roku. I don't know if okay. Apple TV. I guess Apple TV is what I have. Yeah, um, but like you, you have to like. It's not clear when you're in log on to Netflix where the search function is. You have to like true. hit back to find search, even though there's nothing that says hit this button to find the search. Whereas if I go to the Amazon interface, search mm-hmm. is right there at the top left. I just click up to it. Yeah. But it's like, it doesn't want you to search. It wants you to watch fucking like Christmas Prince and Mindhunter or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that drives me really crazy. By really, the way, I do like that cop show Christmas Prince and Mindhunter. <laughs> <laughs> um, what really drives me crazy is the fact that I can't just watch the credits yeah five seconds into the credits yeah it starts playing a trailer for someone else who even if there's a mid-credit scene because the next thing i'm going to talk about after dangerine uh i it cut off the mid-credit scene which is insane to me and there is a way to keep the to just go back to the credits but i i don't remember what it is Yeah, they don't make it clear because um, they would much rather you watch the you know trailer for the new season of lady dynamite yes and finish the movie you started and had been watching for 95 fucking minutes yeah. and you just want to watch the last three minutes of the fucking movie and you don't want to be advertised at i'm already paying you netflix <laughs> yeah. i think i do have a problem with like with the idea like that i pay for this service and now you're also essentially advertising at me you want to know my my big issue with netflix what let's say i want to watch a comedy netflix you know i don't mean stand-up special you know that otherwise (laughs) i would click stand-up comedy which is right there it Mm -hmm. is an option within the comedy section like would you ever make that assumption if I said, hey, let's watch a comedy? Would you ever say, yeah, say yeah, there's this new Brian Regan <laughs> special? Let me throw on Richard Pryor live in the Sunset Strip. That's not yeah. what you meant. No, not at all. You meant, you know, another Richard Pryor movie. Stir crazy. <laughs> sure, Blue Streak. Yeah. Uh, wait, is it blue, not Blue Streak? What's Blue the one Collar. The, blue Collar. Blue Streak yeah. is the Martin Lawrence movie. I'm pretty sure Blue um, Collar is not super funny. It's a Paul Schrader movie. I, I was trying to, like, pick... I was going to go with either, like, Lost Highway, uh, <laughs> or I was, tr- I was intentionally trying to do a non-comedic one, Got it. Got and it. I fucked it up and picked an ostensibly comedic Martin Lawrence movie that I've never seen. Ostensibly. Um, <laughs> yeah. By the way, I, I don't often think in terms of first world problems or white people problems, but it was fun to just hear you say like my biggest, it's like my problem with Netflix is it's interface on Roku. And I thought like that couldn't be a more privileged problem in the world. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, you know, our, my, my film Twitter cinephile purist friends have all kinds of in, like complaints about the way that things are presented in movie theaters. Sure. I don't care about that because I'm a bad cinephile in that I will watch something at home if I can, if I can avoid going to a movie theater to see something, I'll absolutely watch it at home. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 but that, that then in turn, this is my version of that, okay. you know, my version of complaining about 
masking or like the bulb dim, like, you know, brightness or right. bulb dimness or brightness is uh, cutting off the end credits to advertise uh, whatever the new, yeah, the new Bilber special or whatever. There we go. Um, I had to come up with a different example every time. So let's, you, let me ask you this. I'm sorry. I still like Bill Burr. Is that what you're going to ask? Yeah. Me? Well, yes, but um, it seems as though comedians are, did Louis CK expose set, himself to set, women and masturbate in front of them? Allegedly. Um, <laughs> no, he, he no, said know. he did. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> did he set a new standard as far as how quickly you need to crank out material? Because it seems as though there's a new special from certain comedians maybe every year. Yeah, I mean, I think and that I was... I don't remember it being that fast. Uh, I mean, I don't think Lucy K was quite the first. I mean, George Carlin essentially did that sure, sure. For, for a long time. Yeah. So I can't say that Lucy K um, uh, was the first to do that, but he did, I think, make it more seem more of the mainstream thing to do, which yeah. I, is not a complaint to me. I mean, no, not at all. It's every just, year or two is like, you know, that's when a band puts out an album, like yeah. a, a filmmaker comes out with a new film every, every year or two. Like it doesn't, but the nature of stand up is that like, it takes a while to test material, you know? And so it takes a weird. year, apparently I guess it takes Lucy K. Maybe I, that's what it took him. Like, but what if you're somebody, I didn't see Amy Schumer's new special, but by all accounts, it was awful. And just like with stuff that wasn't actually that funny and that she was just kind of as tends to happen, banking on her status to, to get oh, okay. laughs. Yeah. I didn't and, watch it either. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. People should, I, I think, we should encourage artists to put out material when they have material that's ready. Yes. Not according to some, uh, release structure. Yes. I guess. All okay. right. Tangerine. Tangerine. Okay. You know, we've talked about it so much. I just wanted to talk about to me, like, uh, it's such a phenomenal movie. And like, what's funny is that I think of it as being like, I kind of forgotten the tone of it in some ways because I loved it the first time. But when I thought uh, in over the past couple of years, since I've, since I first watched it, I was thinking of it as this like, you know, sort of, uh, almost verite like picture of like these people on the fringes of society. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, and what they have to do to scrape by. And it is that just the, much the way the Florida project is that, but both of them, what I forgot until I rewatched Tangerine is both movies are actually really fun and funny more often than they are mm-hmm. harrowing or sad, you know? Um, and, uh, uh, I think that's a big part of Sean Baker's sort of humanism is that, um, he doesn't want to drag you through poverty, pointing at everything and saying like, isn't this awful? Isn't this tragic? Yeah. You know, there's no Sarah McLaugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He more wants to like say, this is what it's like to be like this day in and day out, you know? And, and that if you, if you live your life in a certain way, you're still going to find time yeah. to have jokes inside jokes, to have friendships, to have funny stuff happen. Uh, and there are, yeah, there's a, it's a very funny movie. Um, and, uh, would you I, compare him to early David Gordon green? Uh, no, because I think, um, he's, uh, less, I mean, not that this is a, I don't mean this to be a dig against David Gordon green, but he's less, less self-conscious and less sort of, 
lyrical. Okay. I think. So there's also a naturalism to him. Yeah. But he's finding the, the joy. I feel like so much we confuse naturalism or we conflate naturalism with, and, and, and the ideas of verite with grittiness. Right. right. And I think, you know, my life day to day is natural, but it's not always gritty. In fact, it's not very gritty very often. That's true. Uh, I'm doing okay. Your uh, worst um, problems. <laughs> the Netflix, Netflix interface on Roku. Roku. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's terrific. And I feel like I don't need to be making excuses for thinking of it as a Christmas movie. If it takes place on Christmas, it's almost certainly a Christmas movie. Now, obviously exceptions can be made for something like Lady Bird, which we'll talk about later. Sure. Uh, which has Christmas scenes. Yeah, that's not uh, a Christmas yeah, movie, no. but I'm saying a movie takes place entirely. The entire tangerine takes place entirely on Christmas Eve. There is a film here that I will be talking about. Um, that takes pl- that is centered around Christmas. And I've been racking my brain trying to figure out why, and it's difficult for me, but I'll get to that when we get to it. All right. Um, <clears throat> Next movie I watched is a movie that you saw and I think reviewed. Yeah, I know you reviewed it because I just read your review for the website back when it came out a few years ago. Okay. It's also on Netflix. I watched Europa Report. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it took me a minute to realize what that was. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a good movie. I, yeah. I, really, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's got a great cast. Um, it, it, it flirts with disaster in more than one way in terms yeah. of its gimmicks plural yeah. because it is a found footage movie and it has a nonlinear structure. Yes. Um, uh, and both of those things could really, uh, annoy you or annoy one. Mm-hmm. But I think found footage increasingly in found footage movies increasingly have become less annoying to me because they're taking advantage of the ways that there are cameras everywhere now. And so you right. can find, you know, a dozen different angles for a scene realistically. I know I've talked about it before, but that is why I liked the Bay so much. The Barry Levinson film where the found footage was from literally everywhere. It was Mm -hmm. from like a a police security camera to somebody's phone. Um, Just all this stuff collected by one person who was purposefully trying to collect it to piece things together. It was quite good. Um, So the premise of your report uh, is that a a group of, um, engineers and astronauts and bio biologists, I guess, um, are, uh, are taking off on a privately funded, not, not NASA. I feel like, I don't know why I feel like that's important, but I do feel like it's important, mm-hmm. um, to the movie, uh, expedition to Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter. So it's right. taking them, you know, however, I mean, the movie takes place over the course of like two years, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and, it takes place and it, it unfolds entirely through the onboard, like sort of cameras that are recording everything, but also in their suits when they're wearing their suits, there are both front phrase, front, front facing and backwards facing cameras. Yeah. So they, you've got all, all kinds of, uh, angles there. Plus there are interviews with, uh, and Beth Davis, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., and Dan Fogler, right. uh, or is it Fogel? I always get Dan Fogler. Fogel. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Because one is the Damn it, t- the I TV producer, and one is the actor, and I forget which one is which. I think it's Fogler, um, but now I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah, uh, as the as the sort of brains behind this private organization, um, and as you might Fogler uh, Fogler. Okay. Yes. As you might imagine, things go uh, things go wrong. You wouldn't have a movie if things didn't go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think the movie is, I mean, I don't know enough about the science to say that it's like hard sci-fi, but it does feel like that. It doesn't yeah. feel like anything is particularly outlandish or supernatural, even when things do get pretty crazy yeah. near the end. Um, uh, and I also think it uses the nonlinear thing very well. Like in, in, in some ways, specifically to create tension mm-hmm. by saying, okay, we know this character dies. Yeah. We've seen them reacting to his death and talking about him having died, but we don't know yet how he's going to die. So there's tension there, but it, then it also uses it. If you remember, there's another tricky way that it gets you with making you think using the nonlinear thing to make you think a character is going to be safe for longer than they are. Right. I don't know if you remember that. that I, I remember very little about, I remember the broad strokes of the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's full of, full of great performances. You've got, um, uh, what's his name? Charlton Copley. Charlton Copley. You've got Michael Nyquist. You've mm-hmm. got, um, the actor whose name I forget, but he was, um, uh, Dexter's brother, spoiler on Dexter. Um, uh, and then, yeah, like I said, Emmett Davids and there's a, a, a few others. No. Um, and the, the effects the, the sets, it looks like it was probably a, a film that was probably given what we can do now. Wonderful. What we can do nowadays. Uh, <laughs> that's our meaning of life. Um, uh, given what we can do nowadays, it probably wasn't that expensive to make, yeah. but it looks good. It looks great. Um, I remember yeah. as I was watching, it, I was like, this is not a well-known film. Where did they get this money? And it's like, maybe they didn't actually need that much. Yeah. It's a small set. Yeah. And then the stuff, I think the found footage stuff helps them sell visual effects when you're looking outside the ship. Yeah. Either at space or at the, the moon of Europa. I think the fact that you're looking at through this later video maybe helps them like sell, you know, put CGI there and it doesn't quite look like CGI. Cause you've got this sort of video layer. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's a there's a, a couple there's one in particular great stunt that I'm not sure how they did without like I'm not sure how they did some of the weightless stuff yeah. and there is one stunt um where someone I guess sacrifices themselves to save everyone else and I was like holy like it, it, it jarred me it was yeah. and I'm not sure how they how they did it without maybe possibly if it, if the set was like on a gimbal that you could spin I'm not sure how else they did that Isn't stuff it it's really cool to not know how something was done yeah. in a film yeah. I feel like these days, even if you don't know how they did it, you're just like, ah, probably computers. <laughs> yeah. You know? uh, yep. That's something you and I said in a very early episode. We did a very, very, one of our top, one of our first like 10 episodes maybe was on visual effects. Really? And we made that point. Oh boy. Well, <laughs> no, I've made so much progress in the last 10 years. Okay. Uh, next, now into, into this year's stuff, which is mostly where I'll stay, but I'll at least for a little bit. Um, and then I have some older stuff that I watched. Uh, I watched the Safety uh, brothers movie. Good time. Okay. Uh, which I'd heard wonderful things about. I never saw heaven knows what, um, I did see, um, the documentary they made. I want to say, uh, Lenny cook, I think is what it's called. Hmm. Lenny Clark is the Boston stand comedian, right? Yes. Okay. It's not him. Okay. <laughs> I think it's you Lenny. Know what? I feel like that's points off. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I saw that documentary, but I never saw, uh, heaven knows what, or the older one that I'm forgetting the name of that was before Lenny cook. Um, 
but good time. I was very excited to see it because I'm a, I've become a big Robert, Robert Pattinson fan. In fact, I never wasn't. I think because I skipped all the Twilight movies, I never had any association with that franchise and with him. So, I've, so I've I went, seen a couple of them. I feel like he comes off pretty much unscathed. He does what he can with the material, and he does his best. So I, I pretty much went straight from like Harry Potter to like the Rover. Yeah. I did see Bella me, which everyone no one remembers even existed. Okay. Um, but, uh, he, he keeps getting better. He is magnetic in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie is, uh, ferociously sort of shot and presented. Like it's it, every image is, is engaging without being showy. It has, fun with color even though it takes place in this sort of you know you normally when you think of like wintry new york boroughs you don't think of like color you think of grayness and that's right. what a lot of it is but it has fun with the colors and there's a bank robbery and so there's like a dye pack that goes off so like there's like a splatter of like orange paint everywhere and then yeah. there's a part where they go through a like a you know cheapo like carnival like amusement park type of thing um the actor uh, Barkhad Abdi, who's in three movies this year, Pirates of Somalia, this, and his one scene in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which That's he's great. great. He is great. Uh, I want, yeah, I want to see this guy in more stuff. I mean, it's weird that it took so long after Captain yeah. Phillips, and now he's got. I mean, he was in stuff. If you look at his, he was in Eye in, the, Eye in the Sky, which is oh, which good. I didn't see. That's um, yeah, he's one of these. It sounds. It might sound terrible, and it might sound patronizing. Like he's an actor that I recognize that because of his accent, and he kind of and he looks fairly unique. Mm-hmm. I could see Hollywood thinking like we've used him the way, the only way we know how, which is the, the Somali, uh, Somali pirate. And I like, but, I like that yeah. they're Denis Villeneuve found him. a new, yeah. As sort of like a back alley wood dealer. Yeah. Because Blade Runner 249 takes place in a, in a world in which real wood is yeah. hard to come by and very rare and expensive. Yeah. And he's a, like a black market wood dealer. That's so cool. And I remember hearing Blade Runner 249 is so good. It's pretty great to the uh, point where, and then we'll get back to okay. good time or to your point. But I was, I found myself thinking like, I didn't like prisoners. I didn't like Sicario. I didn't like enemy. Right. Suddenly I like arrival and Blade Runner 2049. I wonder if it's the kind of thing like where maybe I've, tapped into what I get about Denis Villeneuve. And maybe if I went back and watched those other movies, I didn't like, I would see stuff that wasn't there. Like, like the effect he, we were talking I think about he last found week. found a genre. I think you think science fiction is yeah. where he needs to be. Yeah. Okay. I mean, enemy is kind of a science fiction movie. It is. I didn't care for enemy. I really wanted to, but I didn't. Yeah. I find both enemy and Sicario really boring. Um, for the most part. Anyway, your point you were making before. Just uh, you'd. I had heard uh, some some very sad stories about uh, Barkat Abdi um, right after Captain Phillips. That like he gets this Oscar nomination, but he was kind of plucked out of nowhere. I think he lived in Minnesota at the yeah. time. Didn't have any money, and the film paid him not very much. And then it, it was basically spent. Not like. Not like. Uh, uh, cat in a cavalier way, like he just spent it on the on like rent right. and that sort of thing, and was just there was this thing about like this guy when he goes to the Oscars is going to be the poorest person in the room, and he's a nominee, and you hear that very strange story, and I was just like I at the time I thought like 
I hope he gets more work, but I feel like uh, the way Hollywood works, it's just going to be very limited for this guy. Mm-hmm. But he does keep showing up in things, and I'm I very happy so. for yeah. him. Um, that reminds me of I know. Um, I don't think this podcast even exists anymore, but uh, Jimmy Dore and Todd Glass used to have a podcast together. Yeah, I comedy forget. and everything else. Comedy and everything else. Uh, did you ever hear the episode with David Spade when he told the story? Yeah, about I did hear that one. You want to know why? How quickly he burned through his Police Academy money. <laughs> Such a funny story. Yeah. Uh, why did you hear that one? Because David Spade showed up just in time to interrupt Jimmy Dore bashing me. Uh, do you remember that one? <laughs> I, I didn't realize that was the same episode. Yeah, like he was just about to get into yeah. my views on religious and then David Spade showed up oh, and, like, and then unsurprisingly Jimmy and Todd lost their train of thought. Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, back to good time. Here's the one thing that I, I would understand someone hating this movie mm-hmm. because the main character played by Robert Pattinson. It's a great performance, but he's a despicable person. Yeah. But the movie doesn't, seem to quite condemn him. The movie still sort of still sort of treats him as the hero because he is the protagonist. Mm-hmm. But and he his main motivation is that he really cares about his brother. Yeah. He's everything he's doing he's trying to do for his brother. But basically it's a movie that takes place over the course of one night in which Robert Pattinson keeps getting involved in other people's lives and completely fucking them up with no remorse. Like people everyone who comes into contact with him yeah. is much worse off than they were before and he has no remorse about it and doesn't even seem to think about it because he's constantly moving forward on this quest to help his brother and i kind of there were parts of the movie where i'm like i was kind of looking at it looking at them giving the movie the side eye like is this morally like where are you with this character what do you think you're doing movie (laughs) but i kind of like that it didn't uh it didn't ever come down on any side of that it's just Mm -hmm you know, adopted. This is our character. This is who we're with. This is his point of view. Uh, make up your mind for yourself. What kind of person he is. Yeah. And I, I think he's an awful person and most, yeah, the, the movie is mostly just about him, uh, making things worse for other people more often than not. And I, I have to imagine this is, uh, intentional more often than not black people hmm. come into contact with him and, uh, things don't go well for them. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> like I want to see it. I want to see it really badly, but I also just like, that sounds very stressful and yeah. not altogether pleasant. Yeah. Uh, but it is, I mean, the movie also can be fun. It's, yeah. it's funny if you're willing to embrace certain kinds of, uh, amoral comedy, I guess. I am. Um, yeah. And then, okay, I'll move on. And then one more, and then we get to throw things over to you. Uh, I saw Yorgos Lanthimos's The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Okay. Um, and I loved this movie. I, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, I like it better than The Lobster, even though I feel like that is not the popular consensus or whatever. Yeah. That seems redundant. Um, not the consensus. Um, I, I thought it had more... Um, I guess this is weird to say for, for Yorgos Lanthimos. It had more forward momentum because his movies are very, very deliberately paced, Mm -hmm. but I think the lobster is, uh, I don't even want to say episodic. It's split into two in a way that makes it feel, I think longer than it is sometimes. And not to bash the lobster. I like the movie a lot, but this one is a, it's his version of a horror thriller movie. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and so it does, once it establishes its, its pace and its cadence, which is pretty much immediately, it 
keeps that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so though, even though it's a very slow movie, mo- slow moving movie in many ways, it's very propulsive from, from scene to scene. Yeah. Um, every image is, uh, beautifully composed. Um, uh, even though, you know, he does some of the sort of like, um, shooting from a distance and composing things sort of symmetrically or like with spare frames that yeah. I, that annoys me with some other directors, like yeah. often Wes Anderson. I think I go back and forth, um, you know, mostly back <laughs> on how I feel about his compositions. Uh, for some reason it works for me with Yorgos Lanthimos. I well, wonder it certainly if it works with the lobster, just given the type of tone that he's, uh, trying to capture. Um, yeah. And I wonder if part of it for me is that I, like you know <laughs> the killing of the sacred deer is like a twisted horror movie that takes place in like a an architecture catalog nice. like the the main house is beautiful and i feel like that's kind of the the locations in the lobster are often quite beautiful yeah um but in a like kind of you know uh what's the word i'm looking for um overly designed like bourgeois type of aesthetic sure. as opposed to Wes Anderson who has, I think a self-consciously like cluttered. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He's, uh, I already said spare and cluttered at the same time, but he likes to, he likes to put a lot into his mise-en-scene yeah. to make things feel, I feel like he's trying to make things feel lived in. Maybe that's why it doesn't work for me because it feels too meticulous. Whereas there's no pretense in Yorgos Lanthimos that these are supposed to be, real locations that people live in day to day. Like everything is sort of always pristine and clean all the time, you know, except for when it's not because there's blood somewhere or whatever, in which case that's the point. Um, uh, there was another point I was going to make and I can't remember what it was. Do you know the premise of the killing of a sacred deer? Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know how much I want to give away. It's also not really important in a way. Like it's, it, it has a high concept premise that is deliberately never, like explained how it can happen. Uh, and there is a part in the movie where they watch groundhog day. And I feel like that's an intentional, like, <laughs> yeah, look, they never explained in groundhog day why this is happening to Phil or whatever. Yeah. So we don't have to explain here why or how any of this is happening. Uh, I feel like that was an intentional, like, uh, inclusion there for that reason. I know that I've already, uh, gone off on all kinds of tangents. I'm sorry, uh, everybody, but, uh, I will say, it's so interesting uh, the way you phrased uh, Wes Anderson and like his art direction that like there are times where it feels like like it he wants it to seem as though it is lived in and it's like I think he does want that I have never once gotten <laughs> that impression it's like there is only one set of hands that touched that prop sure, and yeah. it belongs to a grip you know uh-huh. and that is it well uh, a grip would touch the lights oh pardon me uh, a set dresser set dresser yeah. thank you thank you um and so uh yeah and, and so it just uh it's fascinating and th- i think there are things that i really like about wes anderson and his visual style and his art direction and, and that sort of thing but uh yeah the only thing i ever find lived in in his films in the ones where there is any of it at all is in the human emotions. And Mm -hmm. that's not even a guarantee, but anyway, all right. right. Killing my sacred deer. I really, uh, recommend it and was surprised that I liked it as, as much as I did, um, because I was a fan of the lobster and to say, I liked it even more, uh, means something. 
It sure does. Yes, I will. I will have to uh, check it out. And I will, Colin I Farrell has a. Uh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Colin Farrell has a very enviable beard in mm. in the Killing of a Sacred Deer. I could see it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So while you were busy watching all these esteemed films from 2017, <laughs> I decided that while you were watching Good Time, I decided I was going to have a good time, <laughs> and I went and saw Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle. Really? Yes. And I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fun. Well, here's the thing is, here's the thing. Like you've got now, Karen Gillan is not Nebula. Yeah. She's not like an established comedic, uh, personality. Uh, but she is given a lot of really good stuff to do in this film. And she does it. She does it very, very well. But then the other three are well established comedic performers all they really need is just like the slightest hint of like a, a a character or a characterization and a situation that will allow them to do whatever it is they need to do and they have it here and it's a big story it's over the top and they all manage to to match that while also having delightfully small comedic moments i forget just how magnetic kevin hart can be mm-hmm. um and the same with Jack Black, like his his character. I think I, I'm sure you know the premise that these four teenagers get sucked into Jumanji, which has turned itself into a video game because mm-hmm. nobody plays board games anymore. Um, so they get sucked in, and each of them ha- is a different character. But so all four of our main actors aren't they're not playing the characters; they're playing somebody playing the characters. And Jack Black is this. It's this very vain, stereotypical, like ditzy blonde. And uh, so he has to play a certain type of effeminate, not gay. They would come across. It could come across as gay, but he's not doing that. And so there's stuff that like it's it's really obvious, but his level of commitment and enthusiasm really sold it to me like she cannot get over how crazy it is to have a penis. Like at one point, like, cause she says like, I have to well, go. What is this movie rated? I think PG, but okay. it's very strange. Maybe PG 13 because they're, because so at one point she's like, I have to go to the bathroom and I've never done it this way. So can somebody give me an idea? And so they explain what it is. And so she goes, so then she, you know, pulls it out and she goes, wow. And she goes, Martha, come here and look at my penis. <laughs> And then, and then later on, uh, she is hugging Nick Jonas, who she has a, uh, a crush on. And when they separate, everyone's like, Oh, um, and she's like, what? And she looks down and goes, ah, these things are crazy. <laughs> it's, it's really funny. Wow. Um, and then on top of everything else as and the action is a lot of fun. I don't want to oversell it. It's still Jumanji. Welcome to the jungle. But for what it is, it's tremendous fun. And, on top of everything else, PG thirteen. PG thirteen. Okay, that sounds about right. Um, I was going to be scandalized. I was all. I had my pearls ready for clutching. <laughs> Glad I looked it up first. So Think before you clutch, there was. Uh, there's this element to the film that like really spoke to me. I was almost going to write something about it for the for the film, but it struck me as maybe a bit too personal. So I thought I would share it here. Okay. Um, uh, a common thing that I've been telling myself apparently very self-destructively uh is that i'm not good at anything uh except things that don't matter um 
in like a larger objective sense. And so, uh, in the adventure of Jumanji, you know, you've got the rock, pardon me, you have Dwayne Johnson. Mm-hmm. Then you have Jack black who says like, I'm an overweight middle-aged man, you know? Uh, and it was like, one of them is going to be way more important to this adventure than the other, but these are characters in a video game and they all have their strengths and their weaknesses. And so there comes a moment when they get a hold of like this map and Dwayne Johnson's character just looks at it and it's just a blank piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Jack black comes over and there's the map because that is what his character does. He is the cartographer. So it's just, I found myself oddly encouraged. And I think it's a big part of the film. It's, it's not me putting something on the film, just this idea that's like, you know, yeah, not everyone's going to be Dwayne Johnson. Not everyone's going to have as many skills as he does, but some people, but when it comes right down to it, he can't read the map Mm -hmm. and you need to, and he's going to need to know where he's going in order to do these other things. And I came away feeling oddly, uh, encouraged, uh, in the things that I do and the choices that I've made, like, yes, I'm not going to be saving any lives with my movie knowledge. Um, unless maybe it's the devil's rejects or something like that. (laughs) But, uh, but that's not necessarily my role to play. I have other strengths and they are helpful in other ways. And so Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle was a shockingly positive experience for me uh, on every level. I would say you uh, you should write, write or you should have written something about that. I think yeah, that'd be, maybe I still will. That would be know. good. All right, Tyler. Mm-hmm. I watched Change in Tone here. I'm noticing because I caught up on a 2017 movie from earlier in the year that I've been very. You've seen it. I okay. was very excited to see. Based on most of the reactions, both positive and negative, I was like, this is going to be up my alley. And it proved to not be, unfortunately. Uh, I finally got around to Darren Aronofsky's mother. Oh, yes. I just... I I just... <laughs> I don't want to join the chorus of like making the same accusations or the same criticisms that everyone mm-hmm. else is, but the second half of the movie in particular... It's metaphors and allegories are so literal yeah. that I was like embarrassed for the movie. Yeah. The first half is great. I spent the first half of the movie going like, this is going to make my top 10 list. This yeah. is so fucking cool. Um, and then there's a big time jump and it just becomes so, uh, n- not to use a, you know, Latin root pun, but hysterical. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, and shrill and just, I, I don't know. Like, am I supposed to be, how am I supposed to feel about some of this stuff when it's, yeah. when, when, when it's so obvious what the metaphor is, then I can't take any of it seriously as it's within the world, you know? So there like, yeah. there are people getting shot in the head in the movie yeah. and I'm like, this is stupid. I don't care. This is stupid yeah. because I'm not, I've completely lost any connection to it's like, Oh no, they killed that theme. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and I, I just, I, I spent the first half trying to decide where it was going to go in my top five. And mm. I spent the second half waiting for it to be over. <laughs> Hmm. Unfortunately. Yeah, I definitely liked it more than you did, but I not nearly as bad. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. I think there's a lot going on from an acting standpoint. It's great to see Michelle Pfeiffer, as always. Oh, as always, um, yeah. And, and Dominic Gleason in his 18th movie this year yeah, or whatever, yeah. <laughs> which are really good. Um, 
And, uh, and there is something, and I honestly, I think this is probably what a lot of people are responding to. There is an audacity to it that I really respect. And I found maybe refreshing isn't the word, but it's just like, Hey, you know what? I'm not going to see this anywhere else for good or ill. I think that's a big reason why I was looking forward to it because I tend to like audacious movies. I liked cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas made my top 10. Yeah, there you go. Um, I think it was uh, your number one that year. I don't think it was. No, it was Django Unchained. Never mind. Okay. Yeah. Um, even like something like Les Miserables that people were, uh, you know, I loved the audacity of actually recording the, the vocal, the, the yeah. vocals live as opposed to having them lip sync. Yeah. Uh, and that went a long way for me, uh, really liking Les Miserables. And that's what I was hoping for here, but I just couldn't stop rolling my eyes. I think, uh, mm-hmm. for most of the, most of the second half. Also Javier Bardem, sounds like he's always talking through one of those things kidnappers use over the phone. <laughs> Doesn't his voice always sound like that's what it sounds like? Yes. Uh, <laughs> like he's going to ask, what's your favorite scary movie? Um, Although that's a different sound. Anyway. I think I do. And I think I do still enjoy is maybe not the word. I think I appreciate the movie on a number of levels. Um, obviously because of the stuff that it's, I would say exploring that's generous. Um, uh, shrilly condemning maybe is the word. Uh, the, uh, you mean man, the biblical stuff? Eh, maybe not condemning. It's yeah, still, I don't think it's it still is still engaging with it one way or another, but, um, but it's like, it, it doesn't, it really fascinates me from a Christian standpoint. I did do an episode about it uh, yeah. and I wasn't expecting to, but I did, uh, because I just thought like, wow, this is somebody who does not understand the nature of the new Testament. Like, and this is somebody for whom, like, I came away from that film thinking larger things that I don't think he ever meant for me to think. Hmm. And I was just like, he is not big on the concept of forgiveness. Like, he really doesn't like that at all. Um, yeah, that definitely comes across. So, I don't know, um, it was, uh, the companion film for that episode was uh, Werkmeister Harmonies, um, which I think also film. traffics primarily in themes, certainly more than character, but I think does so in a much more grounded and, and focused way. Um, you know, I mean, like, see, we could actually, even though I didn't like the movie, we could talk about mother for hours because, um, I found the biblical stuff less interesting. I like, um, as a movie about marriage, I found it much more, much more, more interesting, but still, um, ham fisted. Yes. Uh, in the, the, uh, the way, the idea of being what it's, what it's like to be married to someone, like Darren Aronofsky, who's an artist and who has a connection to his art. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I've found that the movie got some of its most Polanski ish, like creepiness out of that, out of of, like putting you in her, in her shoes, realizing that this person that she loves, um, completely has something else that he loves maybe even more than she does. Yeah. And that idea of being married to an artist, I think was what was, um, most compelling to me about the first half, uh, and the dumbest about the second half. And, you know, when you hear about the behind the scenes element, which is that 
Jennifer Lawrence then started like dating Darren Aronofsky. You want to be like, were you not paying attention? <laughs> yeah. Like what yeah. exactly did you think you were tapping into when you played this character? Um, okay. So next up for me, we, uh, is a Christmas film that, uh, we did talk about, uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, it is the Santa Claus, oh. um, which I hadn't seen for a while. Um, but, uh, Jen threw it on and I was like, yeah, all right. Why not? And I feel like before you say your thoughts, I feel like there's been sort of a, like, reappraisal of this movie and maybe it's just as people who grew up with it are coming of age or or, or becoming adults but it's being seen as better than we thought it was i definitely think it is um and i think you know as tends to happen the sequels come out and people just started to put them all together and it's like that first one is i don't know if i'd go so far as say it's smart it's interesting and it just it it comes at the whole santa claus thing like from different angles and that's always fun and the idea that like well that's why santa claus lives forever is because people keep getting brought into this thing and i do like the idea that like when you think about like oh you you've been made a slave santa claus is basically (laughs) a slave right you have no choice over gaining weight growing a beard like you have no choice but eventually you start to understand just how important this thing Mm -hmm. is. And in a way you feel almost privileged to be a part of it. And you actually see that in Tim Allen's performance. You see like at when he is Santa Claus and talking to children, like it really does take on a new, uh, uh, a new element. And like the character's not, not like he is like a real smart ass at the beginning and really negative towards almost everybody. Uh, and then that starts to change and he just doesn't really, he's not so f- quick with that. Like there's not a, he's not quite so sharp. And, uh, and I think I really appreciate that. Um, and you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's like a Christmas classic or anything, but I'm glad I rewatched it. Um, cause it, it is a film that I think, uh, uh, deserves to be remembered around this time of year. Okay. Uh, next up movie I thought I was just going to throw on. This okay. was uh, Christmas Eve just after my wife had gone to bed and I had a screener and I was like, this should be a pleasant diversion. Okay. I ended up hating it. Okay. Stephen Frears, Victoria and Abdul. All right. Tyler, Stephen Frears has made a number of movies that I love. Yeah. He made My Beautiful Laundrette, uh, Dirty Pretty Things, most recently Philomena. Mm-hmm. These are all movies I think are terrific. Victoria and Abdul is a monstrosity. Wow. <laughs> it's so bad. And it is so, I mean, I, I know this, I mean, this sort of thing in terms of like, um, representation and point of view has become so much a part of the conversation in recent sure. years. And I think, uh, in a good way, but in, uh, uh, I, I, I think that is exactly where Victoria and Abdul has, feels so old fashioned in that it is a movie about how, gee, this nice, pleasant Indian man sure taught Queen Victoria a lot about how to love India and its tradition and its traditions while meanwhile also still being the oppressive like ruler yeah. and self-declared empress of India and not doing anything to change the lot of the people uh, you know she learns about British soldiers like smashing relics and she's like oh that's a shame I'll have a, a, a replicant replication what's the, what's the word I'm looking for uh, replica? a replica yeah. of that relic made in my in my home on the Isle of Wight and it's like well you're kind of missing the point yeah. here but it's a good thing this completely benign Indian man is willing to 
leave his job and his wife behind for months at a time to walk around your kingdom with you and tell you stories about India and teach you how to write in Urdu. While meanwhile, the only, the the only, the only Indian character who is, uh, uh, committedly like anti colonial and doesn't trust the English is the fucking comic relief of the movie. It is so, it's so tone deaf and so doesn't seem to understand how insulting it is. You know, it's so fascinating <clears throat> looking at Stephen Freer's filmography here. Just when you think about how much of an edge he had early on, sure. My beautiful Andre, prick up your ears, mm-hmm. dangerous liaisons, the grifters, which is a, a favorite of mine. Um, and then, even stuff like, you know, Mary Riley, which is, uh, I don't know if you remember I'm sorry, that. you mean Mary Riley. Mary Riley. Um, <laughs> I never actually saw it. I just heard the TV spots. Chapstick. Um, that's from the Mothman Prophecies. Anyway, um, <laughs> that was an old uh, uh, whispery thing that I enjoyed is that like, Chapstick is so terrifying in this movie. Um, uh, so, I just, this is, uh, this is a reference only for you and me. Okay. But our friend Jim Bruce on the old Paul Goble show going, John C. Riley. <laughs> Uh, Jim Bruce. Uh, oh, he was just on the show. What am I talking October, about? I was yeah. going to say like, oh, I miss him, but he was just on. Um, yeah, we don't miss him that much. But like even stuff like Dirty Pretty Things, um, he had a real edge to him. And then like in 2005, he made like Mrs. Henderson Presents, and then he makes The Queen, which I do like quite a bit. But then he does Philomena, which I've heard great things about. I really like Philomena. He yeah. did Florence Foster Jenkins. Like he really seems to have the edges, have had the edges kind of sanded off over the years, which happens when you get older. But like, it's just, can you th- like think of what, think of this material in the hands of a director, maybe a bit more angry about the circ- the situation. Yeah. That's what it needs. That'd yeah. be really interesting. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and then, the, I mean, the rest of the... You've got this great supporting cast of... So uh, you've got Eddie Izzard and Michael Gambon and Olivia Williams um, and some cast. others sort of the just, like, are just... They're just this company of, like, buffoons who are, like, fuming that the Queen is friends with an Indian man. Yeah. And I feel like it's... And then it gets even weirder, like, at the end when it's like, oh, wait, no, like, they're really awful and racist but it's like we've been spending you've asked us for 95 minutes here to like find them you know you know comical yeah and now they're turning on the guy and it's like you're you're making this turn too late in the movie and i can't take any of it seriously it i really you know my um i threw it on like my, my wife was like getting ready to go to bed and then, like, I paused to say goodnight to her, and she's like, how's the movie so far? And I was, like, 15 minutes in, and I was like, ah, it's, you know, it's harmless fluff. It's pap. It's, yeah. it's dumb, but it's harmless. And, like, the next morning, <laughs> when she was like, how was the movie? I was like, that fucking movie. <laughs> I didn't even sleep last night. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's so interesting that, like, when you think about it, Judy Dench did a version of this movie 20 years ago with Her Majesty Mrs. Brown uh, with Billy Connolly, where she's, right. This you is. Know, I guess this is sort of an unofficial sequel in a way. Yeah, I guess so. It takes place 30 years after Mrs. Brown. It's only mm-hmm. been 20 years since only been 20 years since Mrs. Brown. Fair enough. Um, you and I are old, huh? Yeah. 
we're getting there. <laughs> like I'm going to be TAing again this, uh, this quarter. And so I was like, all right, once more, uh, into the breach of 18 year olds. Yeah. And I will then be turning 36 and I will then be double their age or twice their age. Pardon me. Um, before we move on, this reminded me, cause you and I have talked about like, like what, how do you define what a millennial is? Mm-hmm. Mostly, most of the things come down to like birth date, sure. but I heard a non birth date specific one that I think works and it works because it makes me a millennial. But, um, if you don't have specific memories of the challenger explosion, but you do have specific memories of September 11th, then that's what, where you'd be as a millennial. So I, I was only three when the challenger exploded. I have no memory of this right. at all. So I, I would fall into that. Whereas anyone who's too young to remember 9-11 is the next generation. What if remember. you have spe- very specific memories of the Bush Dukakis campaign? Um, well, that's two years after, two and a half years after the Challenger. Yeah. Because, um, I, yeah, I remember, I remember Bush and Dukakis. Yeah. I remember, like, my just knowing that we were pro-Bush. Because that's my parents sure, were. Sure. Anyway, my... Um, um, my parents have a picture of or my mom has a picture of me that she's threatened to put online for years, holding a, uh, Bush quail 92 <laughs> sign at a Bush quail rally or a Bush rally. Uh, yeah. And so I feel like from a millennial standpoint, like when I think of millennials, I don't think of people who have an actual, have actual memories of the 1990, uh, 1988 presidential election. Yeah. I don't know. That's where my memories start. Those are like some of my earliest memories would be from around that time. Yeah. Um, um I, in fact, one of my memories was we did a mock election in school. I was like in kindergarten or first grade. grade. And so I have this memory of they were, I think they were trying to teach us about electoral votes. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't really remember, but I have this it's board complex for kindergarten, but I have, I remember a board with a bunch of cutouts of donkeys and cutouts of elephants yeah. and like Bush won based on the classes election or whatever, because it's suburban St. Louis and everyone's parents were voting for Bush. Yeah. So all these six year olds were like, yeah, Bush. Um, but that's, yeah, I remember that, but that's, hmm. yeah, that's maybe the only thing I really remember. I definitely remember Perot in, in, in 92. Yes. Much better. Much so. Um, but anyway, uh, let's move on. What's next for you? Next for me is Joe Wright's darkest hour. Okay. I saw this. I liked it a lot. It's fine. Oh, I liked it a lot. Um, As someone who's not usually a Joe Wright fan, I, I, I liked this one more than I think more than average. I looked up who shot it. It's Bruno, Bruno Debanel, and I feel like it looks really good. Um, yeah, it's, you'd it's a think much more... you would get some cinematography nominations. <laughs> I have Darkest Hour in our fan, yeah. in my fantasy award season team, and it's gotten zilch. They're really, fr- but that's the thing. It's gotten zilch from critics. It might do better in industry. Like, in fact, I think darkest hour in general is going to be embraced a lot more when it comes to industry awards and not critics awards. Cause like critics, it's, it's boiling down almost solely to Gary Oldman. Oldman. Like there was talk of Chris and Scott Thomas for supporting Ben Mendelsohn for supporting, you know, all this stuff. Ben Mendelsohn's Uh, great. He's great. As is, um, Stephen Delane. Yeah. That's uh, that I think is my favorite aspect of it. As far as like the story is, you know, you hear about Neville Chamberlain and they're like, okay, well, once he was gone, it's like, all right, this guy is an appeaser and it's time for war. And you just, and this helps you realize like, no, he never really went away. And there are plenty of other people that thought he was maybe doing the right thing and that Churchill certainly was not. And that I found really interesting. 
Um, so like it's, it's well acted and I think the story is interesting. It's well shot. Like you really could do a lot worse than that. Um, I just didn't feel particularly compelled one way or another. Um, and I felt like I would because I've watched a lot of Churchill movies. Um, (laughs) maybe that's why. Because I haven't seen any Churchill movies. That might be it. Yes. Except for the part in, um, uh, Inglorious Bastards where, uh, what's his name? Rod Taylor. Rod Taylor. That is his name. Yeah. I kept my head, my head kept going Rod Serling and I knew that wasn't right. Different guy. Rod Taylor. Yes. Um, plays Churchill. Yeah, that might be, that might be my, my issue. And I think Gary Ullman does a, a fine job. I think the makeup is, is solid enough that it took me probably about 10 minutes and then I was just, I just accepted it. And I think he, you know, putting aside my own problems with casting a skinny guy as a fat guy, whatever. <laughs> um, he did rise to the challenge by which you're going to move differently. You know, you can't move mm-hmm. quite so freely when you've got like that much baggage connected to you. Uh, right. and so like, uh, and I, I do feel like just the way that he walks, it's just very specific to that character. Um, and I think he does find, uh, some of the comedic beats. Um, it just, I, I just wish that it was all more compelling, but that might be because I've watched so much Churchill stuff. I watched the gathering storm with Albert Finney, who I think is to me the, the definitive Churchill. I mm-hmm. thought he was great. I watched into the storm with Brendan Gleason. Then there's, you know, I saw him in, um, played by Timothy Spall in the King's speech and then Brian Cox. I just started watching the crown. So that's John Lithgow. And then there's this, I remember when I was a kid, there was, uh, there was a TV movie that was all about the, the relationship between Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin against Hitler. And I believe Bob Hoskins played Churchill and oddly okay. enough, this sounds very familiar. And Michael Caine played Stalin. And oddly enough, um, John Lithgow played Roosevelt. And so, uh, so I've seen a lot of Churchill in my time and, uh, and I, I'm not, and I won't speak ill against, uh, against Gary Oldman at all. I just felt like it just could have brought me in a bit more. Uh, I found the movie really, um, much better than you did. I, I thought it was compelling in the way that it looked at how, you know, um, you know what like Churchill's first line in the movie is, um, which I wrote about in my review is something, it's something along the lines of I've never ridden a bus. Yeah. And I feel like the movie has a lot to say about the distance that a leader has from the people that he or she is governing. Yeah. And I think interestingly, it finds way to ways to both condemn and sometimes, you know, uh, uh, advocate for the necessity of that dist- distance yes. in, in different situations. I found that really interesting. That's one of the only good things about that Churchill movie with Brian Cox. His performance is great, but like there's a moment where he just like, he wants to be there like with the soldiers on D day because he felt like he, he feels like he should. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm they're going right into what he thought was certain death, at least in that film. Um, and so it's like, I want to be there and the King played by James Purefoy. And I think he does a great job as well. Um, ultimately says like, Hey, this is what it means being a leader. It means you sit back and you have to watch the consequences of your actions, mm-hmm. positive or negative. Like it's quite a weight to bear. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that there's a lot of, a lot of that and that all of these people, whether they're advocating peace or war, all of them are speaking purely in the abstract, you know, uh, as far as like representing their, their people. Um, and so the scene on the train 
On the subway? On the subway. Or the, the, so the underground, the, the underground. tube? Uh, I found cliche in a lot of ways, but I also liked the way it was played. So yeah, I think by that point in the movie, I was on board enough. That yeah. If that, if that scene had been in the first act, I would have you sure. know, wanted to walk out of the theater, but it works. Sure. Uh, where by, by the time we're, by the time we get to, to it, excuse me. Okay. Moving on for me. Um, all right. Richard Linklater is to me inexplicably good at making movies where I can, agree with a whole litany of complaints, mm-hmm. but be, but at the end of the day, be like, ah, I can't be mad at this movie. Yeah, it's yeah. Richard Linklater's too much fun to watch. And so, uh, last flag flying, I, to no surprise of myself, of my own, at least I really liked it. Uh, mm-hmm. did you see it? I didn't, um, it didn't look that compelling to me and <clears throat> I didn't hear good things about it. Uh, and I understand that's what I'm saying. I understand the not good things. It's, um, it's a movie full of characters, like a lot of Richard Linklater movies, characters telling you how they feel a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Uh, it also is now I never saw Trumbo, but it might be the, of what I've seen of Brian Cranston. This is the, the exhibit a in the case that maybe Brian Cranston is not as good as we've been giving him credit for. And he's just an enormous ham because he is Godzilla should be. I never saw that as one as the exhibits. Like uh, he somehow managed to be bigger than the monster as far as the performance he's giving. Um, yeah, well, and here he somehow manages to make Lawrence Fishburne look like a subtle actor, <laughs> um, uh, which that, that sounds me. And I've always been a Lawrence Fishburne fan. Yeah. I think, I think there are certain actors that do big performances. Well, yeah. and Lawrence Fishburne is one of them. Brian yeah. Cranston, I think, you know, outside of obviously like, uh, you know, he had, uh, the Walter White, like, uh, yeah. which I think was well suited to that role. Um, I, I think I can just, he, I, I feel like I'm just watching Brian Cranston want the camera to look at him more than I'm watching the character. be yeah. big. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, those are all complaints that I have. And then there's one very brief exchange that is so stupid and corny between Brian Cranston and a uh, cab driver that I was like, and it's only like three lines and it has nothing to do with the plot. And I'm like, Richard think that didn't anyone tell you, you could just cut that part out. It's so stupid. What are, what are the lines? Okay. It's th- because there's been nothing about this, Okay, but they're finally going back. Do you know the premise of the movie? Yes. Okay. So they're finally going back to Steve Carell's hometown where they're going to bury his, his son. Uh, and the cab driver's driving them from the train station. They're taking the Amtrak cab driver's driving you and they drive past like a, a closed factory. God, this is so embarrassing. And Brian Cranston is like, <laughs> looks like they used to make stuff here or, you know, and the, and the, and the cab driver's like, yeah, used to. And, and Brian Cranston's like, yeah, that's the operative word used to. <laughs> I know. Right. It has nothing to do with the rest of the, the movie is not about that. I don't understand why it's, in fact, it, that's almost antithetical to what so much of the movie is about hmm. because that kind of like rose tinted, backwards looking bullshit is exactly what the movie is against. Most of the time the movie is saying our institutions, our leaders, our government is full of shit and it's always been full of shit. And the only thing that you can do about it is dedicate yourself to something and find the honor in doing that. Yeah. And so like it's a movie that I think the basic point of the movie, which you don't have to read too deep into it, it pretty much says this, uh, is that, um, the military is awful, but being a soldier is noble. 
I think sure. that's like the main, I think sure. point of, that's, that's the main point of the movie. And so that, that nostalgic bullshit in that scene, I don't understand why it's in there, uh, why it had to be in there. It, it needs to be, it, you, the movie would be a, like a half a letter grade better without that 15 second exchange. <laughs> uh, really dropped it down. Uh, but um, again, all that aside, uh, I, I still think Richard Linklater makes movies that are um, uh, consistently engaging to watch. They're also very funny. Um, uh, you know, he can find sort of like in a much different he, milieu, but sort of like Sean Baker, we were talking about before Richard Linklater can find truly funny moments that are also as realistic and natural as anything, you know, sure. the, the kind of funny moments that you have at a family reunion or with your friends or, you know, not like manufactured, like quote unquote comedic moments, just like this is a funny exchange because this is the way people talk. And sometimes people are very funny. Yeah. And I think Richard Linklater is very good at that. And so last flag flying, despite often being, um, a real bummer, um, given what it's about, you know, yeah. um, is also, is also very funny, uh, a lot of the time. And so I, I definitely liked it more, uh, you know, B minus maybe I, I, I liked it more than I thought I would. And I liked it more than I didn't, but, uh, like with, you know, good time or killing the sacred deer or whatever, uh, I would understand someone hating it. Okay. So next up for me is another Christmas film. Uh, and I think it is turning into, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's turning into a film that I like to watch every Christmas season. Um, and that is a Christmas Carol, um, which is just, just great on so many levels. It's just, it really understands like in a way it really understands the nature of Charles Dickens, England. It is like, of course, with the Muppets, it's going to be heightened. How could it not be? <laughs> but also, like, from an art direction standpoint, like, I wouldn't say, I feel like, like, I feel like you could do a German expressionistic interpretation of Dickens, and it really wouldn't be that out of place. Not that this is that, but I like that just the way, like, whether it be Scrooge's house or the graveyard or these various places, like, everything is, I, this is a thing I've said before, and sometimes derisively and other times positively, in this case, positively. It's like everything is is boiled down to the essence of what it is. Uh, and so when you see like Scrooge walk around his almost completely empty house because he doesn't want to buy furniture, it's just like, look, I recognize he likes to hold on to his money, but nobody lives like this if they can't if they can avoid it. Like at least put one or two more couches. But the idea is like he has an empty heart and all that sort of thing. So from a visual standpoint, which is not a thing I'm used to talking about when we talk about the Muppets. <laughs> um, I like that. And I do think that, uh, I think Michael Caine does a really great job as, as Scrooge and the music is really great, which is not a, not uncommon for really any Muppet, uh, production, but, um, there are some really solid, you know, there are some songs that are very specific. There's one very much about Scrooge himself, but then there are, there are larger, uh, there are larger songs about just the nature of Christmas and, uh, and it's just a, it's really just a delightful movie. I've seen several versions of a Christmas Carol, uh, on film on stage. And, uh, I'm not sure if I'd say this is the best, but it definitely is 
uh, a film that I saw. I saw it in the theater when it came out. That was like 92. I've seen it several times since then, including now. And it just, uh, it really has held up for me. I should watch it. I haven't seen it since middle school. Good stuff. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the music because it reminded me that I wanted to talk about the best part of Todd Haynes wonderstruck, which is Carter Burwell's score. Oh yeah. Um, unfortunately the rest of the movie doesn't quite live up to that, especially it's long middle section. Um, but it's still a Todd Haynes movie. It's still not like other movies and it's often quite beautiful to watch. Um, but, uh, again, I keep asking this. Do you know the premise of Wonderstruck? Sort of. Okay. So it takes place in the seventies and in the twenties. Yeah. Um, two stories that and then often, there, there's this lake house. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, two stories that sort of, it goes back and forth cloud Atlas style between the two and finds sort of uh, commonalities between them. But both of them involve deaf children in New York city specifically in the natural history museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because they're both deaf children, there are long parts without dialogue. Yeah. And so the music is very important. In fact, in fact, the twenties part is entirely a silent film. There's only music. There's nice. no dialogue or sound effects in the, in, and it's in black and white, the twenties stuff. Wow. Um, the seventies stuff is more naturalistic, I guess. Um, uh, and yeah, the music's beautiful. Um, and it definitely, especially the silent stuff, um, really has some compelling, uh, imagery, and also, I love uh, James Urbaniak is in the 1920s oh, part. Yeah. And he's an actor who looks like he should be Boy. in silent movies in the 1920s. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, that's why if you remember, I, one of the first roles I remember James Urbaniak ever being in, even though it was a very tiny role, he's a member of Django Reinhardt's band in um, oh, yeah. Sweet and Lowdown. Yeah. Because he just looks like he's of that era. Yeah. Uh, and so he's perfect as the, as the deaf girl's dad. Um, and, uh, you've got Julianne Moore in a dual role. Um, uh, cause she's in both for both. She's the one character actor, actor, Susan, both. Uh, so you get that. And the end is absolutely beautiful. Um, when we realize the connection between the two stories and, um, we get this whole sequence that takes place at the, um, um, there's a enormous, um, it's called the panorama, but an enormous model of New York city. It's a real thing in Queens at the mm. Queens museum. And they shot it there and the entire sort of climax, I guess of the film takes place in, uh, uh, you know, on top of that model mm-hmm. of New York city. And it's absolutely beautiful, but so much of the middle is just like, well, I mean, for one thing, I hate saying this and I feel like I've said it a lot, uh, in, 2017 but um the kid actors just aren't very good unfortunately Mm. and it so depended on them um that uh a lot of the middle section of them just walking around the natural history museum you know um it just drags because it's it's hard to buy Mm. um but uh yeah still you know I, i would still say a middling movie from Todd Haynes is still worth your time because it's a Todd Haynes movie. It sounded uh, very good and it looked very intriguing to mm-hmm. me. And I also like that it might be one of the most specific movies in the world. Uh, just like with everything you say, it's like <laughs> there's these two time periods about two deaf children in the mo- natural history music. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Safe to say there is no other movie like this. Yeah. All, All right. right. Next up for me is another Christmas movie. All right, here we go. I'm tired of apologizing for liking this thing. All right. Okay. It's love. Actually. 
Um, oh uh, well, I'm not gonna tell you. You shouldn't apologize. You, you should apologize. Obviously, <laughs> it's a bad movie. <laughs> so th- this is the nature of like stories, li- films like this. Is not every story is going to land, S- but some of them really do. I love Alan Rickman's story. Um, okay, and and Emma Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it, you know, is a little bit cloying, but I think it's sold by like for like Liam Neeson's story, but because he is such an anchor mm-hmm. of an actor, um, I think Laura Linney's story is really effective, um, where she yeah. takes care of her brother who has like mental issues and it keeps her from doing the things that she would like to do, but she still loves her brother. Like there are stories like that that are difficult and don't necessarily end happily. And I feel like those really help the film. And it's always fun to see Bill Nighy uh, mm-hmm. play his ridiculous character. Um, and there are elements that I like about uh, Hugh Grant's character. And so there's just, uh, but like everything Colin Firth is just like silly. I, I, I like Colin Firth, but like his story is silly. And I hate, hate that thing with Shiotelogy <laughs> for. Kira Knightley and Ugh. the guy from the walking dead, whose name I've forgotten. Uh, Andrew Lincoln, Andrew Lincoln. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, it is fun to watch, uh, love actually, and just see how many people's careers are so notably different, including Liam Neeson. Like this is before he became a huge action star. Uh, and so, um, I hate that. I, I hate that story so much. I don't know why anybody would ever see it as romantic where it's just like, Hey, uh, I know you just married my friend, but I'd like you to feel conflicted for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. So here, I'm going to hold up this thing. Uh, so it's not a, obviously it's not a perfect film, but it taps into like a very specific type of sentimentality for me. If, if every single story worked out well, um, mm-hmm. I think I'd like it less, but because some of them don't, uh, that helps me a lot. And Jen pointed something out, which is like, I didn't like Titanic until I saw Pearl Harbor. I didn't really like gladiator until I saw kingdom of heaven. And maybe more critics need to see like, Valentine's Day or <laughs> or uh, to grade on a curve. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And just you realize like, oh, this can be done much, much worse than it is because uh, Jen and I watched. Uh, He's just not that into you, uh-huh. which was unsurprisingly not my idea, but it's horrible. Um, and so, like, I do think that there's always a worse version, maybe not always, but there's often a worse version. And, uh, with a cast like that, and I don't know, I'm sure people are going to give me shit about it. I'm not defending it like up and down. There's a lot of stuff about it. I don't care for, but there's other stuff that it kind of counteracts that for me. Uh, I would say I should watch it again, but I don't know if I could, could subject, subject myself to, especially the Colin first story again, which I hate. Thankfully it's, it's mercifully little screen time, which um, is nice. And yet it stands out so much in my memory, yeah, doesn't it? Uh, including because it has one of my least favorite jokes, joke structures that's in way more, way more movies than it should be, which is like, I want to marry your daughter, my overweight, dowdy daughter. Yeah. Oh God, no, yes. not that this one. unlovable urchin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, when I watched that, I was like, Oh boy, I can't wait for this thing to be over. Uh, um, okay. So you'll see here is where I start. Uh, I go back and forth between starting to work some older movies back into my diet okay. uh, instead of just cramming on 2017 stuff. Uh, though there will still be some of that. And I watched a movie I've been meaning to watch for a long time. I watched Larry Cohen's the stuff. 
Um, oh, wow. Have you ever seen it? Yeah, I have. Um, not for a while. Though. It's not great. No. Uh, it's corny. Um, and it never, I think it's a horror comedy that is never scary enough or funny enough to really work. Yep. But it's, um, still an intriguing movie to watch that has an, a really oddball energy that is part of Larry Coden's signature, but also very much brought to the screen by, Michael Moriarty, who is terrific. Yes. And that, that is an actor who like outside of law and order, he never really went mainstream. Did you ever see uh, Q the winged serpent? We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to Q uh, uh, very shortly. Um, Somebody uh, was in a Michael Moriarty mood. <laughs> well, I was in a Larry Cohen mood. Fair enough. Um, um but, uh, yeah, the stuff is, uh, I, it, it, it also like is a very superficial as a sort of satire of um advertising and, and yeah. corporate amorality or whatever it's uh it's it's not a great movie but it's also it's like 85 minutes and it's weird enough to be interesting <laughs> i would definitely recommend it to people especially like paul sorvino shows up as like a super racist like right-wing militia guy who is also kind of the savior like yeah i feel like that's larry cohen going like look, these guys are like awful, but also kind of necessary. Yeah. Um, he's like, he's like Michael gross in tremors where like in any yeah. other circumstance, he would just be a joke or a villain. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> we are going to need the guys with the guns. Eventually. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, there was one more thing. Oh, okay. There was one thing that made me laugh so hard because it just felt like a goofy little bit. And I don't know if it was in the screenplay, if it was just an ad lib, but like near the end when Michael Morardi and, um, Andrea Mordovici, I can't remember who plays the, the romantic lead, the female lead. They're like hiding, looking down like at the quarry at night, like looking down on where they're like mining the stuff out of the ground. Yeah. And he's like putting on the uniform. He's going to go down and sneak it, pretend to be one of them to steal one of the trucks of the stuff. And he's, and he's like, all right, you stay here. I'm going to go down there. And he starts to sneak off and then she starts to crack her knuckles and he from off screen goes, shh. And she goes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, it's so out of nowhere yeah. that it, uh, it really made me laugh. Um, all right. What's next for you? And then we can talk about Q. <laughs> next for, <laughs> uh, next for me is Greta Gerwig's lady bird. All right. Well, this will save me one later. Okay. It was so built up by the time I saw it. I wonder if I had the same issue. That it's very good, if not great. And I really liked it and occasionally loved it. I I cannot find fault with any of those performers. Uh, performers. You and I have always big, been big fans of Laurie Metcalf. I think she oh, does sure, yeah. such wonderful work on uh, Roseanne. Um, and this Timothy Chalamet is one to watch, as I've been saying for a long time. I would have liked to see more from his character, but I guess that's the nature of his character. Yeah. Um, I thought Lucas Hedges was great for a number of reasons, not the least of which is like, oh, theater students, I remember you. <laughs> um, but uh, and Sir Sharon, like it's. It, She's astonishing. Oh, to the theater, me. Stephen Henderson. How great was he? He was great. I wanted to. There's like a weird thing it, going on with him. It's like it, I, I just, need a bit more here. It's just like not in the movie anymore. Yeah, yeah. And it feels like something got cut out. It's like, well, you needed to either cut more or less when it comes to his character. Um, but Saoirse Ronan is just like a, an, an astonishing actress. Like she, this character couldn't be further from Ailish from Brooklyn. I mean, mm. even though it's a similar type of arc. 
um, which is this kind of coming of age thing, but she's just miles away. And there, there are so many effective elements of this story. I, I do feel like it captures a certain type of, uh, high schooler, admittedly one that I wasn't really, um, all that said, and this is not the fault of Lady Bird, Margaret does a lot of this stuff, and in my opinion, does it better. That is not the fault of Lady Bird, and we should, we should only ever look at a movie on its own terms. But it's really, it was really hard to get that out of my mind. A good portion of the film, I found myself wanting to come home and watch my copy of Margaret, which is not necessarily a great thing. Um, so I really liked the movie. I didn't love it. It's not in my top ten. Nowhere near my number one. Um, yeah, I, and I think because it was it was blown up. I think for me, I I hope it's not because uh, I it's also not going to be like I also think it's a very good movie and it's not going to end up in my top ten or even my honorable mentions probably. Um, but I want to I want to resist like the idea. I don't want to believe that I was that swayed. <laughs> you know, by, by the hype. But I did, I do also find myself like at the end of it, I almost felt bad that I didn't like it more. Yeah. It happens. Um, cause like, uh, Oh, it's like Greta Gerwig. Who's a creative force that I've liked before Sure, yeah, as an actress and as a, as a writer and like basically co-director of Francis Ha. Like there's a, I like a lot of her sensibilities and I like a lot of her instincts in the film. Like, and I want more things to come from her, which they will. Like you and I are very much in the minority. We're not going to ruin anything for Greta Gerwig. <laughs> yeah, um, but, uh, you know what? If I'll say this though, if it was, if someone said, Hey, you have the option of, of having enough power to ruin someone, but it's going to be Greta Gerwig. But that does mean you have a lot of power. Eh, I'd do it. You'd take it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd sit it out. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd let Greta Gerwig have her career if I could. Fair enough. Um, but I, yeah, I kind of feel like this is going to be my moonlight of this year. Whereas, mm. like, yeah, this is a good movie. I have no problems with the movie. Yeah, I'm just not seeing. I think what other people seem to be seeing in it. But I want to go back to something you said, which is that um, Lady Bird as a character is very unlike who you were in high school. Mm. I related to her a lot, right? Almost to the point where part of me is wondering, am I? am I resisting this movie because I'm intentionally trying to distance myself from this sort of negative portrayal of who I was interesting because do you even though she's the hero, material? She's not a nice person. She's not, she's mean and she's racist and she's, uh, she's racist in one scene. Yeah. And, and even though it's a very funny scene, it's still not okay. Yeah. And she is rightfully sent to her room for it. Um, <laughs> and she's, uh, she, she's not, she doesn't respect, um, the feelings of her close friends often. Yeah. She does a lot of things that I was like, I don't like, I wonder if I'm intentionally distancing myself because she's like, she's like me in a way in the sense that Lady Bird is a character who like doesn't like anything, but still craves acceptance. And sure. I feel like that if I'm being honest with myself and some of my personal faults yeah. that, uh, that falls very much in line. And so maybe I, I have been thinking since I watched it the other night, I've been thinking, that I should watch it again. Um, I think I might as well. I do. Feel, I, I'll say this. I feel super guilty bringing up the Margaret thing. Like a film should exist purely on its own terms. No, I don't um, think, I think that's, but I think it's also your job as a critic to, to help find a film's place in the cinematic universe and in the canon, yeah. you know? So I think yeah. making comparisons, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I did. And maybe um, that's just 
part of this subgenre is like yeah. they're going to like if it's a teenage girl it will explore her right. relationship with her mother you know um but i i couldn't help of help but think of how um I, Tanya is a better dark comedy about white working class people than three billboards. <laughs> Even though sure. the movies have nothing to do with one another and it's weird to compare them. It's just, I couldn't help but think like, yeah. maybe, you know, I, I don't know the people who love three billboards. Do they have, they not seen I, Tanya yet. I don't understand. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, three billboards. This is all to say three billboards is not good. Um, yes. All this entire <laughs> episode has been for that. Uh, I will say, Really, that's what our podcast is about. <laughs> it took us a while <laughs> to, <laughs> to really find our, find our, our hook. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, that very quickly, one of my favorite actors working today is Tracy Letts. As okay. her father. Like, I thought he was great in The Post. Last year, he was marvelous in Imperium. And I, as her dad, I thought she was, he was just such a specific type of yeah. man who is involved. He's not Bob, Bob Balaban from ghost world. Like he is involved. He's smart, but he does deal with his own issues. And between her mom and her dad, it's clear she is the forceful one yeah. and he is the passive one. Um, yeah. Last year was a year of Tracy Letts for me because of, uh, wiener dog, even though he's only in the first section. I don't I know. See it. And then, um, what's the one that you absolutely should see that's based on a Philip Roth novel. Um, is it called like, it's called like indignance or something. What's the word I'm looking for? Oh, oh, shit! It's <laughs> no, something like that. But it's no, not I said that. indignance, and that's what you're gonna. Yeah, think, it's, but, it's, but not it's, that. it's very much like that. Yes. Um, um, uh, and he's with, great with in Logan Lerman, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, um, he's fantastic in both of those. This year, he was also in The Lovers, which is not great, um, but he's very good in it. Yeah. Um, he's just a very specific type indignation. of indignation. Indignation. It's a movie. Um, yeah. He's a very specific type of naturalistic actor. Even, but also funny. Also funny. So he's an Imperium playing a type of uh, a, a radio personality for like clan members and white supremacists, like full on. Oh, okay. And when he's confronted about that, he he kind of gets this sense that like I feel like I'm about to be trapped because Daniel Radcliffe's character is an undercover FBI agent. So like as he's asking him about this, like lets his character it's like he's saying such ignorant, horrible things, but he is canny enough to know that something's going on. Mm-hmm. And I totally buy him. It's very it'd be very easy to turn that character into a caricature because they kind of are. Um but he plays him with such specificity and I just, uh, and of course there was that wonderful Seinfeld episode. Yeah. He was on, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I see you like the company of men. What about me? I'm a man. Yeah. <laughs> what about Charlie? He's a man. I'm a man. Uh, I love that part. Anyway, uh, uh well, so, yeah, yeah. if you, if you think he's funny, you should watch wiener dog. Uh, is, is the lovers worth watching? Uh, first off, I, I love Deborah Winger. I know so it's like, such a great cat. I would say probably not. It's not worth watching. That's unfortunate. Yeah. All right. Uh, my turn. Can we talk about Q AKA Q yes. the winged serpent? Okay. Yeah. So I was in this Larry Cohen mood after the stuff. I decided to go to his previous film, which was his first collaboration with Michael Moriarty. Uh, by the way, his last collaboration with Michael Moriarty was an episode of Showtime's masters of horror, hmm. uh, in which, 
Feruza Balk played a woman who is the chosen victim of two different serial killers at the same time. And so the movie becomes a very sort of very dark, like madcap farce of two serial killers, both trying to kill the same woman. And Mike Moriarty plays one of the killers. Who's the other one? Uh, I can't remember his name. Oh, uh, that sounds uh, great. Yeah, it's really good. Um, uh, anyway, um, Maybe I just, I think I just like the, co- the sensibilities of Larry Cohen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, as a writer, he wrote cellular, which is a movie that yeah. you and I have gone to bat for uh, yeah. many, many times. Um, yeah, he's, yeah, he's great. But, um, yeah, Q is a crazy movie. Um, because it's <laughs> Q is basically, it's a, monster movie like an old-fashioned monster movie yeah. that takes place in a Elmore Len- Leonard movie <laughs> in a way yeah. because Michael Moriarty who's I guess the main character although I wouldn't say the hero because he's not a good guy no he's this sleazy Elmore Leonard character is perfect yes. yeah he's he, a full-on low life yeah he's a low life like Felix in your neck exactly <laughs> um who um is a getaway driver for bank for jewel uh, j- you know jewel robbers jewel robbers that can't be it. jewel thieves jewel thieves <laughs> is probably what I uh, the better description um, who uh, stop that uh, man he's a jewel robber <laughs> <laughs> somehow it just doesn't have quite the yeah. the punch um, yeah uh, it sounds like someone performing songs written by jewel um, <laughs> claiming them as their own uh, anyway. Uh, so he, uh, in trying to get away from one of these robberies, he hides in the Chrysler building and finds the nest of a giant winged serpent, yeah. uh, that is the modern day, uh, re incarnation, I guess, of Quetzalcoatl, yeah. the Aztec serpent God. Um, and so this thing is flying around New York, killing people on rooftops. Meanwhile, um, the followers of Quetzalcoatl are performing ritual sacrifices in which they're exsanguinated and flayed alive, I yeah. guess, um, willingly. Uh, these like rich businessmen are flying from all over the country to come to New York specifically to be flayed alive and offer themselves up as sacrifice to Quetzalcoatl while he's picking off he the bird yeah. thing is picking off naked sunbathers off the roofs of yeah. midtown um, uh, all in like stop motion and model work yeah um yeah it's uh it's very cool uh it's very fun you've got david carradine and um richard roundtree yeah as cops that's right which i think there's something about larry cohen and his view of cops or law enforcement okay. because it also comes with, did you ever see the ambulance no with uh, eric roberts such a cool movie okay. also stan lee's first film role <laughs> because uh-huh. eric roberts plays a marvel uh like artist oh and stan lee i don't think he's ever called stan lee in the movie but he essentially plays himself um and he i guess he had been on tv shows as himself before sure. that but i think the first time stan lee ever appeared in a motion picture was 1990s the ambulance um in which when people call 911 an ambulance is showing up and taking them and not taking them to the hospital and killing them and using their organs and shit Ooh. for whatever. Uh, it's a really cool movie and it's not available to stream anywhere right now, hmm. which is unfortunate. But James Earl Jones plays the cop in that. And I feel like Larry Cohn's like cops are like almost sort of like I talked about Paul Servino and the stuff like they serve their purpose and they can do good, but they're not to be trusted. Yeah. Um, and I kind of feel like that's how David Carradine and Richard Roundtree are. They're both kind of like jerks. 
um, uh, and they're not above, you know, framing or cutting corners to get Michael Moriarty yeah. uh, where they need him to to be. But they are essentially the heroes in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. David Carradine is as close as you get to a hero, even though he shoots the villain in the back at the end. And then, <laughs> and then doesn't even, my favorite part is that he doesn't even, it's in a hotel room. He doesn't like do the paperwork or whatever. He just leaves the body for the maid to find. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he's like, I'm out of here. I'm not dealing with this psycho. I killed him. It's over. <laughs> um, um, by the villain, I mean the guy who's doing the sacrificing, not right. Quetzalcoatl. Right. Um, anyway, I've gone on too long about the movie. It's a lot yeah, of fun. I disagree. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, my friends and I, many years ago uh, in Missouri, we went to video update one night, and we were going to, it was like, let's let's find a bad movie to watch. And so we saw this Cue the Winged Serpent, which on VHS had this ridiculous cover art. We're like, yeah. oh, this looks, this looks perfect for this. And we watch it like, you know what? This is actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun movie. <laughs> and we wound up just like, we didn't say anything. We didn't make any comments. We just watched all the way to the end. Because what happened was like, we were trying to like make jokes for about 15 minutes. And then <laughs> I paused it and was like, all right. Do you guys think this is pretty good? <laughs> yeah. Yes? Okay. Do you want to just watch it? And so we just watched it. And uh, yeah, I remember, I have fond memories of that movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, right. overall, even though, yeah, Michael Moriarty is, he's great. Uh, and, but much like lady bird, he can be a bit of a racist and it makes me, uh, yeah, it keeps me from thinking of him as the hero of the movie, but he's a total scumbag. Yeah. I think the movie knows he's a scumbag. Yeah. Who finds himself stumbling onto being right about something. Right. And doesn't try to save people so much as he tries to get himself rich and, yes. uh, uh, Im- immunitized, I guess for all his, uh, yeah. <laughs> all his crimes. It's a yeah. neat idea, uh, for, to, to hang a movie on. Um, okay. And so it th- ends with the suggestion of a sequel that never came. Not yet. Because it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we need another, because yeah, the, the very end we realized that, the Chrysler building nest was only one of Quetzalcoatl's nests. Right. And it has an egg in another nest in Q2. Oh, come on. Yeah. It's right there. All right. All right. Last for me. Um, this is the movie I was talking about where it takes place at Christmas and I can't figure out why it is Shane Black's Iron Man three, which I I've seen a few times. I've spoken about it on the show. Um, I'm, I'm, I was guesting on another podcast, um, uh, to talk about it. That episode's not available yet, but, um, I'm a big fan of Iron Man three. I like it a lot. There's a lot of stuff that I really respect about it. And it was a pivotal film in the Marvel cinematic universe because that's the first one that took any kind of risk. And it's the first one after the Avengers. So it's almost like phase one happened. We all got what we wanted and expected. Now that we know that this thing is a guaranteed moneymaker, let's start changing it up a bit. Mm. And so you get like a subversion of the Mandarin. You get an Iron Man movie where Tony is not in the Iron Man suit for the bulk of it. Um, and I love that. I love a lot of those choices and I think it really solidifies, uh, the arc of, uh, the arc of Stark. I don't like that. I said that. (laughs) Um, and there's some really great action set pieces and I just, uh, you know, we get so focused on this larger franchise that we don't, I feel like we don't look at the specific character work that's going on. We look at the kind of, 
characterization, mm-hmm. but that's different. We look at like certain choices that like, Oh, they're playing it this way. It's goofy or whatever. Um, but if you look underneath what a lot of these actors are doing, they are approaching these characters like full on characters. And I think Robert Downey Jr. Most of all of them, probably because he's been in the most, uh, films. Um, and it's just, he's such a deeply flawed person who, even when he's trying to do the right thing, doesn't really know how. So that's where you get something like age of Ultron, where he's trying to do the right thing and winds up making things so much worse. Um, and it's something that I, that I find refreshing and, but the film takes place at Christmas and aside from him kind of learning more about like being committed to his girlfriend, uh, played by, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, aside from that kind of relational thing, I don't really see much reason behind it except that Shane Black likes Christmas. Yeah, he seems to, he seems to, but, uh, but yeah. I, have you seen Iron Man 3? No, I haven't seen Iron Man 2. Iron Man 2 also has some great character stuff because that's when you see Tony at his absolute most self-destructive and it's really effective. And you get to see Sam Rockwell. Um, I like Sam Rockwell. So I'd say, uh, I'd say watch, watch them both. I think you would like them especially. I think especially there are things in Iron Man 3 that you would really love. Well, I've still got some Larry Cohen films to catch up on first. Okay. Um, <laughs> first things <right>. first. <laughs> um, I had three more, but one of them was Ladybird, so okay. we can uh, cross that off. Um, I saw this is my last 2017 movie um, of the of well of the film journals in 2017. Oh, yeah. Next time we do a film journal, it'll be or a movie journal, it'll be uh, it'll be 2018. See it'll you next still year, be, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> <Good> <laughs> we're eight years old. Um, I watch. I went to use my movie pass uh, last night. Went to that. Um, Weird Pacific Sherman Oaks Five Theater. That's where I saw Ladybird. Uh, oh, okay. And I went there. Ten twenty show. Guess who? How many people were in the theater? Just you. Just me. Uh, okay. Well, I went to a surprisingly packed showing of Wonder. Given, oh yeah. You know, being a Wednesday night when a movie that's been out on a movie that's been out for a month. Yeah. It was a surprisingly full showing, and this movie is so good. I thought it I, might be. I, 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 I it totally snuck up on me. I mostly. Uh, I'm being half like serious here. I mostly wanted to see it because I wanted to complete the wonder set. Sure. Because I'd seen wonder woman, professor Marston and the wonder woman, wonder wheel and wonder struck. Yeah. So I needed to see wonder just to complete the set. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but no, I did, I did want to see it. Um, and it is, it is really good. It is. I, I mean, I feel like every, well, there's like, a movie every year or two that comes out that it's like, absolutely. This is a mainstream populist entertainment. Um, but also is at no point is it disingenuous or dishonest at all. It's a, this is a real serious, well-made piece of storytelling that just happens to be incredibly palatable. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's what more movies should be. You know, that's why I like going to the TCM classic film fest, not to participate in some, you know, last leg flying type of, uh, (laughs) nostalgic bullshit. But like, uh, you know, and what we're seeing this in, in music right now, where like some of the most exciting and purely good things that are happening in music in 2017 are mainstream pop artists. And I want to see more of that in, in movies, you see it in old movies. And that's something that I, 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 I feel like aren't, there isn't enough in the 
stuff that's coming out of the major studios. Not that this is, this is a Lionsgate movie, so I'm not sure, but in terms of something that's aimed squarely at as many Americans as possible to also be really good is very rare. You mentioned that it's, that there's one a year. Uh, I was interviewed. I don't know. A guy who runs a, a, a sort of a, conservative commentary website that for like movies and who has very similar sensibilities to my own, which is kind of nice. Um, he, he and I had been talking and he said, Hey, do you think you could put together like a few paragraphs that I could quote, um, about why wonder is doing so well? And I hadn't seen the film, but Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't think I need to see the film to know what it is. And cause it's like made a hundred million dollars. Like that's why it's surprisingly packed because it's hidden figures. There's always a, a that was exactly going to be my yeah. example last year because weirdly my 2015 and 2016 examples are both space movies or space travel movies. Sure. Hidden figures in the Martian are my two like populist successful. And I would really say movies. I'm, I'm reluctant to say this cause it's rated R, but I'd say, I mean, American sniper made okay. a ton of money at the end of the year but i didn't think it was good so that's why it doesn't qualify for me <laughs> right but a lot of people a right. lot of people did and it's a movie that appealed to adults it's not part of a, a it's not a superhero movie or anything right. like that there is one and it's almost always in like in the last month of the year and it just and so he was asking like why do you think it does so well and so and it's everything you're talking about it's just first off there's something to be said for stars like and julia roberts is still a star and this is a movie that's for Adults, by which I mean, it's not like rated R mature. It's for adults in the sense that, like, a five-year-old probably won't care much about this, but it's, or maybe they will. The movies for kids. I wouldn't say. I mean, five's probably a bit, bit young, but I mean, there were a lot of the people who were there at the movie last night. I went to the seven twenty-five show, so not too late. Um, were parents with their kids, including a really cute kid who was behind us, who like asked his dad questions throughout the movie, but in a way that Natalie and I like didn't find annoying and mostly found very cute. <laughs> um, like the, there's a scene at the beginning before we've seen, you know, you know, the premise, he has yeah. a, a genetic thing that uh, his face looks very different than, um, most human faces. And so there's a scene before we've seen his face, a flashback to his birth. And like the nurse and Owen Wilson are like, have this shocked expression. And Julia Roberts is like, what's wrong with him? And the kid behind me was like, what's wrong with the baby? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then there's also a part where two characters are communicating over minecraft so they're like talk like typing to each other and what and like the last thing i don't know if the kid was not following at all but the last thing that is said is okay like the letters okay and the kid said does that spell okay (laughs) wow he's a cute kid he was very young maybe he was a five-year-old you were talking about but i would say 10 to 12 year olds maybe even younger than that sure not only would uh, enjoy this movie, but I would say should see this movie. Yeah. Uh, I feel it, it is a movie that I think they should show in schools because it's a, that's great. Uh, a very, you know, it's a movie about, um, how everyone sort of has their own shit and yeah. like, um, don't be mean to other people. It's a very straightforward message yeah. of don't be mean to other people. You don't know their life. They don't know your life. Uh, it's easier to be nice to people. There is a there is an idea that I had because as I was writing this thing about why Wonder was doing so well and why movies like this do well, almost invariably, this is maybe why American Sniper doesn't totally fit. Although maybe Um, it's a true story, so I guess Hidden Figures is too. Anyway, 
putting all that aside, um, they're usually upbeat. They usually mm-hmm. are hopeful. And it's around a time of year that most movies for adults are not hopeful. Yeah. Which is Oscar season when, like, we deal with all the horrible shit yeah. so that we can get some nominations. Yeah. Um, and, I think The Post uh, is a hopeful movie, though. I think so, too, yes. Um, would you say The Post is cynical? No, I think it's clear-eyed. Uh, clear-eyed, that's a good way for it. A uh, good way to describe it. But ultimately it. hopeful. Um, but, yeah, and so... Uh, yeah, I want to see Wonder, and it's and I will still have plenty of opportunities. It's hanging around. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yes, it's a positive, uplifting, hopeful movie. It is also a tear jerker. I'm sure. Bring some Kleenex or whatever brand of tissue you prefer. Uh, I went through a number of them, <laughs> um, uh, including. I mean, a minor spoiler here, but uh, I'm very sensitive to this. My dog passed away a couple months ago. Yeah there is a dog in the movie mm. is incredibly sad uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, but also incredibly sweet and cute uh, I, I, I was really really happy with how good this movie was uh, and then I came home and I watched a movie I'd always meant to see and uh, turns out it's uh, really dumb maybe even my least favorite Billy Wilder movie can you guess my least favorite Billy Wilder movie I'd never seen it before so are we so am I guessing yes I'm guessing yes what did I see last night what did I watch on Amazon last night? Least favorite Billy Wilder movie. Is it one, two, three? Uh, no, I've never seen one, two, three. Neither have I. Some, I just realized somebody lent it to me and it's sitting on that stack uh, over there. And I but it does it. have a number in the title. <laughs> Someone at home has already guessed. 51 Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. <laughs> Right? That's the address. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, uh, it's, oh, Stalag 17. No, no, I've seen Damn that. Damn I'm, I'm coming it's up. It's a comedy. Coming up aces on, uh, no, coming up. It's not ace in the hole. <laughs> well, of course it couldn't be. Uh, I'm not sure. The Seven Year Rich. Oh, yeah. I forgot that was him. Yeah. Have and you I seen it? I haven't seen it. It's so dumb. And apparently, yeah. uh, from what I read after watching the movie, he was not particularly proud of it no. either because he wanted to make the movie that was closer to the Broadway play, but the 1950s like censors and studio yeah. were like, you can't have that. And he said he wishes he had never made it because the movie doesn't make sense if they don't consummate their relationship, which they don't in the yeah. movie. Whereas the play is about a guy cheating on his wife yeah. and in the movie, they never, he never actually yeah. goes through with it. And, and it in totally the play, like they changes. actually have sex on stage. <laughs> like they really go for it. Um, no, it's a really stupid uh, movie, unfortunately, that is about a guy that I, I just can't relate. I mean, part of it is I like the whole idea of the 1950s businessman who's which is something we saw in like Mad Men, even though that was the 60s. But like the idea that the wife takes the kids on va- on extended vacations while the husband stays in the city and keeps going to work every day. Um, like that's the whole the whole premise. And it's like apparently it's a city uh, within the reality of the movie. At least it's a citywide thing that like all the men are, you know, set free for the summer because oh, their boy. wives took the kids upstate or, or to Maine or whatever uh, <laughs> to go kayaking for and live in a cabin for a summer. Um, uh, but I, I, I just couldn't relate to this guy that Tom Ewell plays who I Tom Ewell is played him on the stage, apparently on stage apparently as well. And that's how I got the role. Uh, but he's just, and maybe it's because of what Billy Wilder was saying that because he never commits to anything, it's just a movie that's an hour and 45 minutes of him just being all wishy washy. Mm-hmm. And it's not, 
compelling. He comes across as a total like mental weakling. Nice. <laughs> um, and uh, I, it, it, the only times it's good is when Marilyn Monroe's on screen in which I literally don't care what's happening. Yeah. And I was thinking like there's, there's something to Marilyn. I'm not the first person to say this, but it's just worth mentioning. There's something to Marilyn Monroe well beyond her being like a bombshell or a, you know, a sexy yeah. actress. Like we have and have had for decades since, you know, it's been 60 something years since this movie. Um, we've had sexy actresses. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a magnetism to Marilyn Monroe that goes well beyond that, that I can't even put my finger on. I love watching her in any movie I've ever seen her in. Hmm. Um, even if the character doesn't make sense. Um, and there's also a really dumb joke in the movie about, so the character that Marilyn Monroe plays, um, is never named. She's just the girl in the credits. Mm. And so there's a part where she's in the kitchen and another guy comes and Tom Ewell thinks he's been caught, even though he hasn't done anything. <laughs> um, and, and someone's like, who's in the kitchen? And he's like, you don't know. And, and Tom Ewell's like, for all you know, it could be Marilyn Monroe in there. Ugh. Yeah, <laughs> that is exactly my reaction. That's, uh, that's some Ocean's 12 <laughs> level. Uh, I know the reference, even though I never saw yeah. Ocean's 12. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, as a, as a sizzle, re- as a sizzle reel of, Marilyn Monroe just owning the screen. Yeah. There's, you know, 45 minutes of the movie that is just killer. Yeah. Uh, but there's just this other hour of, uh, noncommittal fat around it. That's just Tom Ewell freaking out and smoking cigarettes. Uh, and it doesn't work. It's, it's my least favorite Billy Wilder movie, Mm. unfortunately. And, uh, let's move on to TV. Do you want to go first? Sure. I've only got one that I can remember. Um, I watched, on Netflix, it's new. It's a four-episode thing. It's called The Toys That Made Us. Um, each episode is about the history of a different line of toys. Hmm. Uh, so episode one is like the history of Star Wars toys, and then Barbie, He-Man, and G.I. Joe. Uh, if this is season one. Apparently, there's, they're, they're going to make more. Um, I was worried that it was going to be pure nostalgia, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it sounds to, like. To the point of like, ugh, I'm not in the mood for this. There are plenty of websites that are already doing this. And the tone is that a little bit, but this is definitely not that. I They, you know, you don't talk to this many executives, like this many, this many toy executives if you want to engage in nostalgia. Like it's, it's very much about like the unlikely, we know these toys as being incredibly impactful and incredibly popular. And so it just goes behind like the, the corporate decisions that went into that and just how big of a deal it was that, for example, He-Man was a toy line that wasn't based on anything that it like was unheard, absolutely unheard of. And what would, and then what would happen later is like, well, let's get a cartoon together in order to sell the toys, uh, and that sort of thing. And so, and then there's always, there's always disputes over who created what. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very, it is very interesting and it's, and it's also astonishing to just look at, you know, the lessons that are learned about like the toy market. Um, a standard thing is like, Oh, these things are very popular for about five years and then they either need to change something or they're done. Um, he man in like 1986, I think, He-Man Toys brought in, He-Man Toys and Merchandise brought in $400 million. 
the next year it brought in $7 million <laughs> because a few things. One was they had made so many ancillary characters mm-hmm. that kids would, could go to toy stores and buy them, but any, it wasn't welcoming to any new kids because you couldn't find He-Man or Skeletor. You would only find these other, these other characters. Um, and so what is the, uh, uh, cringer? What? Isn't that the cat? Oh, well, isn't that He-Man's cat? The battle cat is, uh, is the name of his cat. And there's a fun story about that that made Jen and I laugh incredibly hard because a lot of these executives are just very plain spoken. And so (coughs) there was this guy who's like, Hey, we need like He-Man needs some kind of transportation, but we don't really have a budget for that. So the, the company used to put together the, it used <laughs> to make, it's called Cringer? Cringer. Oh, wow. Battle Cat is the only way I, I ever referred to him. But, um, so they, they took this tiger from an old line of toys that they produced, painted it green. <laughs> and, and so he talks to the guy who's supposed to make this happen. And the guy's like, because well, it, it's, it's huge. Like, look at, look at the He-Man figure. And now look at this tiger, which is from a whole other toy line, a bigger toy line. It's like, it's the size of a horse. And he goes, and then I said, I don't give a fuck if it's the size of a horse, put a fucking saddle on it. And, just like, and so stuff like, like, you know, there's a lot of language. There's a lot of, uh, it's, but it, there's, there's also a weird tone. Like it's very like a lot of cheesy, shitty jokes. And so it's not necessarily a great series, but it is very informative and there's an element of nostalgia, but I'm also a big fan of like what's behind the thing that caused the nostalgia. And that to me is, is the appeal of the show. Um, and the t- one TV show I want to talk about is I finished the second season of search party. Um, and now look in 2017, all of the shows that aren't twin peaks to return are battling for second place. Okay. <laughs> that said search party might be the second best show of 2017. Um, you disagree with me here? Admittedly, I have not seen Search Party, and I've only seen five episodes of Twin Peaks, but American Vandal, uh, pretty damn no, good. I didn't see it. It can't be better than Twin Peaks to return. I Probably not. Um, but uh, you would love Search Party, by the way. You I'm would especially sure. love the second season, but you have to watch the first season first because yes. it's a very heavily serialized show. But, uh, but the creators... Um, said is the first season was i think i might have said this on the podcast before you, you the first know. season was hipster nancy drew yeah. this season is hipster hitchcock yeah um, um uh and i think it's a it's a really very funny show consistently um that is also i think has made probably the the surprisingly the most richly drawn characters of like any show on television perhaps right now and is you know embraces its characters as people while also being completely unflinching in the way that they can be awful and mm-hmm. self-centered. Um, and like a lot of Hitchcock or noir type of, of, um, of protagonists, these are heavily flawed people who act, um, often in their own self-interest first and then justify it to themselves. Uh, and, and so, I mean, without I think the, move, the the show deserves credit for without being mean about it. It's a movie. It's a show. I keep saying movie. What am I? One of those assholes. Um, anyway, 
uh, without being mean about it, it's a show that is critical of the exact type of audience it's aimed at. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that basically it says that everything that you like, you know, brunch eating, vinyl buying, thrift store shopping thing people think are important is not important hmm. and that there are much bigger things happening in the rest and much more important thing happen things happening to people who aren't as um sheltered or privileged or whatever, or whatever right. as as you are. But it says that very again unflinchingly but also like i said it has so much compassion for its characters and mm. it has some of the best performances on tv i think this actress meredith hagner or hanye hanye i'm not sure how you say her name is giving i think hands down the best performance i've seen on tv uh in 2017 mm. um and of course leah shawkat's great and the two johns john reynolds and john reynolds and john early the, those are the four main uh cast members you've also got um uh Ron Livingston is in this season, not as much as he was in season one. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, what's her name? Uh, who was the, um, not Sarah Chalk, the other woman on scrubs, Judy Reyes. Is that her name? Oh gosh. I don't know. I've seen one episode. Oh, okay. Um, she's on it this season. You got a lot of people who, who sort of come through. Um, uh, and there's also just a ton of great jokes. There's a Canadian cop who finds a dead body, um, and is telling the the detective who arrives on the scene uh, <laughs> the body was <laughs> the body was stuffed disrespectfully into a girly suitcase. <laughs> um, you, you've also got um, there's a very funny bit where um, uh, Aaliyah Shawkat to throw the cops off her scent makes up a character makes up a person she's heard of a mobster named Fat Frankie and everyone is immediately like that's such a made up name yeah. and then when the person with mob connections comes back to the detective she's like okay so there are five Fat Frankies <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway uh, Search Party is really great really really great it hasn't it apparently hasn't been renewed for a third season even though the second season definitely ends on a cliffhanger yeah. so i'm hoping there's a third season and it's um, I, I think it's a pretty popular show it's tbs right yeah and I, at least maybe it's not popular I, i've seen it like the the network has really gotten behind it from an advertising oh, okay. standpoint and so like i don't know maybe that doesn't maybe that means it's not popular <laughs> yeah that's true maybe they're but, trying to yeah but, yeah, uh, either they believe in it or they're like, all right, this is our last, uh, last chance to like push this. Otherwise, you know, we're done with it. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, I really think you would like it. I think I would too. Um, if there were, were an easy way for me to watch it, I probably would. Um, there's streaming with commercials at tbs.com, but, uh, I don't know who has the energy for that. <laughs> 